Just before I introduce the next, uh, the preacher who's going to be talking this morning, um, some say he taught Dale Stain how to bowl a fastball. Some say he can make a milkshake in two minutes by using a whisk and whisking by hand. Some say that he reads the whole Bible every day. Some say he was a Spanish bullfighter in his youth. And some say he is still in his youth. Shane, won't you come up here and join me? This is Shane, for those of you who don't know him. He's so much more than those things. That was really a whole bunch of rubbish. But um, Shane is first and foremost a son of God. Then he's a husband. Then he's a father. Then he's a pastor. And lastly, he's a financial planner. I think the one thing that I love most about Shane is he really kind of lives out the, the thing that Paul speaks about in the Bible when Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. And if you've ever been in Shane's life group, if you've ever heard him on a Sunday, he'll say the phrase, I am so fraught. Has anybody ever heard that? And he really knows that he's a sinful man. He knows Jesus has really completed his life and has washed away his sin, and he lives in that. So, yeah, Shane, welcome this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Most of what he said is nonsense, except the Spanish bullfighting. Um, when I was 13, I got my Spanish colors for... Um, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> well, it's really good to see you, and it's, it's really good to see you. It's such cool weather. Well done for coming to church when the weather's so great. It's good to have a theology of commitment to church. So, great to see you. Um, I wanted to wear my Springbok jersey this morning, but my chief fashion advisor said no. Um, once you've been married for 10 years, your wife has an incredible say over what you wear and what you can't. So um, she's a wonderful lady. I love her dearly. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be speaking on the rich young ruler this morning. So can I ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, verse 16. Um, if you don't have a, a Bible or a tablet or a phablet or a phone or whatever, it will come up on the screen here. I'll just run through it quickly. Matthew nineteen sixteen. It says, And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, him is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, he said to him. Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you don't leave us to figure you out on our own, but you've given us your word, Lord. And I pray that as I speak this morning, Lord, that you'd highlight things in our hearts to us, Lord God. Amen. Have you ever read something in the Bible and you know <clears throat> there's more to this, but I just don't quite know what God's trying to tell me in this? And I think, I think this scripture is one of those, because I'm sure at the back of your mind, you must be thinking, oh my goodness, do I have to sell everything now? Do I have to sell everything to be a Christian? Do I have to sell everything to have eternal life and follow Jesus? And uh, what I want to do this morning is, is get some gems out of the scripture and actually apply it to our everyday life. Now, this rich young ruler, I don't think he was an outcast. I think he was, he was quite a cool guy from what I could see. He was um, a religious man, judging from what I can see. He kept all the commandments, so I don't think he was a bad guy. Um, 
He was well respected, I would imagine. He probably would have been an everyday guy, just like you and me. And uh, why do I say that? Because I think that this guy represents something of you and me. I don't think, in fact, I know, this doesn't only refer to rich people, this parable. Um, this rich man's questions, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so we may not be wealthy, okay, but I think that this man represents something in what's inside all our hearts, and that's a thing of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. We can tell this by the questions that he asked. You see, they seem sincere, and genuine. But if you had to dig a little bit deeper and read into the text, you'll see that his motives are actually not that noble, and they're not as sincere as what they seem. And they're actually rooted in self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. So let's get into it. So he made, this man made two serious errors about what he thought eternal life was all about. And you can tell that by the two questions that he asked. The two questions were, what must I do and what must I add? Do you want to take that away? I'm pretty much done with it. Thanks. Um, in verse 16, we read, he says, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a mistake that I think so many people make about how we approach God. We think, what must I do? What do I have to do in order to approach God? And, and you can understand the poor guy. I mean, because every other religion apart from Christianity, every way of thinking, every philosophy, places all the emphasis on the individual. You have to do something. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to listen to all these rules and obey. Um, and what he's saying, the rich young ruler, give me something to do. But Jesus, Jesus won't have any of that, actually. Um, it's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is we actually come empty-handed. In fact, there's nothing that we can do. We come empty-handed. Because our default mode is we think that God will hopefully accept me based on something that I do. Surely I have to do something. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, give me a list. Give me, give me like rules. Give me something that I can do to prove myself to God. He wanted to earn his salvation. So he wanted the list. Do you know why? Because if we've got a list, we can control God. If we've got a list, we say, okay, I've done A, B, C. Now, God, I want you to do X, Y, Z for me. But God doesn't work like that. We don't come to him with lists. He's not going to bow down to how we perform. And praise the Lord for that. Because as Brendan said, I'm pretty fraught. Um, so Jesus answers him. He says, okay, cool. Let's, let's go down this road. Keep the commands. Now, if this man were honest with himself, he would have said right there and then, okay, I'm, I'm a bit in the bush there. So I guess I'm out for eternal life because there's no ways I can keep all the commands that God wants us to keep. Um, but what amazes me is his response. How's his response? I've kept all of these. Whew, check at me, bro. I am the man. I've kept all these things. How's that response? Um, He honestly thought he could keep all of God's requirements. And my question to you is, are you living like that? Are you thinking, I can keep all of God's rules? Look at me, I'm so cool. Um, I'm worthy of eternal life because I keep all the rules. You know, sometimes our good deeds and our moral record prevent us from seeing our desperate need for a savior. So we actually think, you know what? I'm okay, Jack. I don't kind of need to accept what you've done for me on the cross. I'm going to do this thing on my own. You know what the amazing thing about doing it on your own is? Is you will never, ever feel good enough. Never feel good enough. There'll, um, there'll always be something more that I can do. Notice what he said, the rich young ruler, although he was totally wrong in his thinking, thinking I've kept all the commands. He said, I've kept it, but, but what more? Give me something more. Because I have this nagging sense of, of, um, I have this nagging sense inside of me of having to prove myself. Have I done enough? Do I need to do more? Give me something more to do. 
And I, and I tell you now, the most righteous person in the world does not feel good enough. Do you know why? Because you can have a good track record. So you can go for maybe whatever, certain time period, keeping all the rules. But one day, you're going to mess up. And then what? You're going to be devastated. You're going to feel terrible. You're going to feel not good enough because the basis for your acceptance was keeping all these rules. So now how's your righteousness, buddy? <laughs> um, so the second error he makes is he thinks, what must I add? So he keeps all the rules. So remember, it was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and what must I add? Okay, I've done all those things. What can I add? What can I add? Um, he thought serving Jesus was something that you add to your existing life. Um, he thought I can stay as I am with my thinking and my way and what I think is right and just kind of add a little bit of Jesus to my life. I just want to carry on as I am, but uh, just add Jesus. I like things the way they are. You know, I kind of dig my portfolio here. I've got all my stuff lined up and maybe I'll just add a little bit of Jesus to that. Um, I'm just looking for some heavenly help. I like things as they are. I just need some heavenly help. And you know what that's like? That's like taking, I'm going to try to do this with one hand. I might need my lovely wife to help me. But you know what it's like? Like this is our thinking. So this is, this is my way, my agenda, what I think about God, my kind of thinking. But this, this is actually represents God. In fact, I'd love to get a, 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 a sheet or whatever the size of the field here to illustrate it. But this is God. And what we try to do is we try to take God and we try to add him to our way of thinking. And what happens? Are we getting anywhere? <laughs> Remember, this thing should be the size of the field. We can't add God to our agenda because, you know, at the moment we can take God <laughs> and add him to our agenda. Is he really God? Is he really God or who is God? Who is God in this situation? This little thing here. <laughs> really? <laughs> we can't take God and add him. We can't add him to our way of thinking. Or it's like, it's like an orchestra. Thanks, love. See, that's my bullfighting thing there. Gee, I wasn't, <laughs> um, we can't... Another example. The rich young ruler thought that he was like an orchestra. I don't know if you've ever been to an orchestra. That, 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 okay, that, I've never understood that thing. Sonia tried to explain it to me once. That, that shakes that wand, magic wand. What's that conductor? Yeah, that thing. So he says, you know what? I'll have a little bass. I'll have a little bit of bass here, a little bit of treble there. No, 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 don't like the drums. No drums, no drums. No, I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of cymbals, a little bit of, give me some more instruments. Guitar. You can see I'm, I'm musically challenged. Uh, right? The French horn. I'll take the, no, 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 but I don't like the Italian horn. So, and sometimes we like that with God. We think, you know, okay, Lord, you know what? I'm going to obey everything, but you know, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to forgive because Really, I don't think that that person's worthy of my forgiveness. So we kind of we kind of pick and choose what we want to. You can't add God. You know what? Oh, let me get ahead of myself. So maybe you think my marriage is in trouble. Oh no, let me add a bit of Jesus to my marriage. Maybe I'll fix it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my view on marriage and what I think how I should treat my wife. But I'm just gonna kind of add Jesus and he must fix my marriage. Or my business is in trouble. Or my kids are wild. So I'm just gonna add a little bit of Jesus and and hopefully everything's gonna be gonna be. So, God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work like that. Yes, he can fix those things. I'm not saying he can't. He's a God of restoration. Absolutely. If your marriage is in trouble, he can fix it. I believe he can. But we don't worship the restoration. We worship Jesus. We don't put the restoration there. And Jesus kind of somewhere at the bottom here. We really need a cordless mic. Um, Jesus at the bottom down here. And I re you know what I mean? You know what it's like? You know what serving God is like? It's like, it's actually, I'll get to that. 
The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking these questions, but at the back of his mind, he was thinking, don't ask me to change anything. Don't ask me to give. Don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me for anything. Don't, I just want to add a little bit of you, Jesus. And I want to feel better. I want some kind of heavenly help. But you know what Jesus is like? Jesus is more like an explosion that comes into our life and smashes everything how we ever thought we approach God. And he makes way for something new. So he smashes the thing of, you've got to obey this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. And he explodes it, and he says, I've done it all for you. I've done it all. You don't add me. You don't add me. I come in, and I explode, and I change everything. That's what the gospel is like. Because before, we approached him on our moral record, but now we come empty-handed, and we say, I have no resume. I have no resume. But I accept what you did for me on the cross, and that's my eternal life. That is my new um, frame of reference. Our foundation, our thinking, our viewpoint changes when we encounter the real Jesus. And you know what starts to happen? Is over time, the gospel completely changes us. And it changes who we are, and it changes how we see God. So I said this guy wasn't so sincere, so maybe I should uh, justify that. You can't say ugly things like that from the pulpit. So uh, <laughs> let me justify it. You see, he thinks he's kept all the commands. So this guy thinks he's pretty okay, Jack. So what he's doing is he's looking to Jesus to actually just affirm all the hard work that he's done. So he's looking to Jesus to say, look, hey, give me some credit, man. I've kept all, the com- all these commands. He actually wants some affirmation. He doesn't want Jesus. He wants Jesus to say, oh, you've been good. You've been good. Oh, you're a good boy. Yeah, you're a good boy. And, and um, what's Jesus' response to self-righteousness? He says, you think you're okay? Okay, cool. You think you're okay? Let's start with the first one, and let's see how you do. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. And Jesus is saying, I'll show you how high the bar really is, if you think you can keep all the commands. Now, this command doesn't necessarily refer to bowing down to a deity, to like a, a statue, like a Hanuman or a, a Ganesha or, 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 or some religious statue. But what are you bowing down to in your heart? What, what, what is enthroned in your heart. You see, this commandment is God, I want God, when, when it says you shall have no other gods before me, God wants to be our everything. And, um, and this rich young ruler had another God. He did. And he'd broken that first commandment. Because you know why? You know what his God was? His God was money. He didn't see it, though. But he had, his God was the idol of wealth. And you know why I say that? You know why I know that? Because he wasn't prepared to give it away. You see, if you're prepared to give it away, then actually Jesus is your God. Um, so what's an idol? Okay, I've thrown this word in your idol. So what's an idol? An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, joy, security, and identity. Excuse me. An idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, your joy, your security, and your identity. So in this example, it was money. Money was more important to this man, and he derived his sense of happiness, joy, security, and identity from his money. And how do we know this? Because he wasn't prepared to give it away. It was so important to him. Um, oh, God, you can have everything, but no, not that, because that, whew, you're touching a nerve there, Jesus. Now, an idol is not a bad thing, and I want to emphasize this. I'm not saying money is a bad thing. Not at all. Because you know what? This example is money, but it actually can be anything. It can be anything that our hearts long for more than God has the potential to be an idol, like family or a new home or a new job 
or a new car or promotion. I mean, you can even make an idol out of your self-righteousness. You can think, oh, I am so good. Maybe one day when I've got all my things sorted, I'm gonna, then I'm going to have peace because I've stopped doing this and I've stopped doing that and I've stopped doing this and I've stopped that. Your idol is actually your self-righteousness. How do we go about identifying these things in our lives? How do we know what's an idol? So I'm talking about what are you worshiping? How do we know if, we, if we've got some stuff in our heart? And how we do that is by asking some tough questions. So what thing or person, if you lost, you would lose your will to live? Just think about that. What thing to you is so important right now that if you lost it, you'd be devastated. You'd actually lose your will to live. Or, or let's put it another way. That massive promotion that you've been waiting for for years, if you don't get it, how would you feel about yourself? So you've been striving for the last, whatever, 10, 15 years. Man, that job, I got that job. And some little okey comes along, takes that job. And how do you feel? Hmm. What are your deepest fears? Some more tough questions. What are your deepest fears? Is it not having enough money? Do you stress about that? Does that consume you? Is it not being able to perhaps have a child or never meeting Mr. Right? Oh, I'm never going to meet Mr. Right. Oh. Um, maybe you're petrified that people won't like you and approve of you, or, or you, you, you just long or you stress about never being able to drive that new car or, or staying in that fancy house. Um, it's very likely that those things are idols in our hearts, and they're dangerous because we think that we need them. We think this is what I need. This is my heart's desire. Oh, if I have this, oh, if only I could have that. But what does Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says? It says that our hearts are deceitful. They'll deceive you. They'll lie to you. They, we can't understand them. That's what Jeremiah says. They'll lie to us and they'll tell us that we need things. We must have this thing. If we get this thing, hey, you sorted. It's a lie. It's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie. Don't fall into the lie of following your heart. Please, I beg you. This new age thing, follow your heart. Guys, if I had to follow my heart, I, would, I wouldn't be married now. I know that. I wouldn't be married because there's been temptations along the last 10 years of being married, but I've got to run a mile from those things because your heart says, ooh, but no, 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 no. Your heart, don't run after your heart. Let somebody else capture your heart, which I'm getting there. So the things that I, that I often find my sense of security, and ident- well, security in, like money, shares, investments, more income, you know what happens? They always leave me wanting for more. So I have some, I'm a financial planner, as Brendan said, so I have some really wealthy clients, and I love listening to them talk, because as they talk, they expose what's in their hearts. Doesn't that often happen? They often say things like, mm, Shane, just a few more millions. So I say, when are you going to stop working, Bob? When are you going to stop? Oh, just a few more million. But you know what now? It's not about the money anymore, Shane. It's about the challenge. It's about the fun. It's now a game. But you know what? All the time, they're looking for more and more money to make them more and more secure. Because you want X amount. And you get there, and you still don't feel secure. So maybe if you double it, okay, oh, you get there, oh, I still don't feel secure. So now I'm just going and going and going and going and going all the time without realizing it, trying to numb the sense of insecurity with more and more money. So we numb, often idols tend to numb ourselves to the real reality of what we're doing. We're looking for more and more and more to try to cover up a, a deeper need inside. And that's the, that's the danger of idolatry is we don't realize we're doing it. In 2008, in the, sorry, 
There's no real security outside of Jesus. Nothing is secure actually outside of Jesus. In 2008, during the financial crisis, people lost millions. You know, stock markets crashed, subprime, blah, 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 blah. Ford magazine published this article, which reads as follows. Researchers from the University of Oxford compared suicide data from before 2007 with the years of the crisis and found that more than 10,000, I've never heard of this term before, economic suicides associated with the recession across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. There's been a substantial rise in suicides during the recession, considerably more than we would have expected based on previous trends, says the lead author, Aaron Reeves, let me read this thing here, a postdoctoral researcher in the sociology department at Oxford University. So these are some clever oaks. Now, why would people do that? Why would you go kill yourself? When you, you know why? I'll tell you why. They lost their very identity. They lost their sense of security. They lost their reason to live. They lost their sense of value. Because you know what? For those people that ended up doing that, their lives had no meaning if they had no money. So what if you had to lose your idol? What if you, what if you had to lose today would make you lose your reason to live? Eh? Tough questions, eh? Our idols will crush us if we disappoint them. If we're worshiping money and we lose money, we will feel devastated. Our idols will crush us. They are ruthless. They are ruthless. You'll feel useless if you don't get that job. That job that you've been yearning for all those years. Or you'll feel terrible if you've achieved that goal of saving up X amount in your bank account. And you get there and you're like, well, you don't get there, sorry. You, you set your whole life this goal to achieve this thing and you don't get there. How are you going to feel? You're going to feel terrible. You know what? Idols are a dangerous thing because they're insatiable. If you get that promotion, you want a bigger promotion. If you save that amount of money, you want more money. If you meet Mr. Right you're going to be very, very frustrated because you're going to put all sorts of pressure on all misses, right? All sorts of pressure on him to satisfy you because no person is created to satisfy our deepest desires. No person can do that. No thing can do that. So I've touched on if we had to lose our idols, okay? What about if we had to get them? What about if we had to obtain all these dreams and desires and goals that we think we need? Will they satisfy us like they promise? Let's take an example. Look at the Hollywood stars that I think a lot of people think, oh, if only I had their life. If only I was famous and everyone knew me or everyone liked me. If only I, if I had all that money, whew, those cars, those houses, ish, then I would really have peace. Then I would have security. Then I would have happiness. Am I the only one that thinks like that? <laughs> I know I battle with some of these. I think, especially their homes. I look at their homes and I think, oh, look at those gardens. Oh, we can play cricket. I mean, geez, we could have a whole cricket team and play in the, some of the size of those gardens. We could, and I think, oh, it'd be so much fun. And I can, like slap myself or wake myself up. So what happens when you achieve all your goals? Are those people satisfied if we look at them? Are they satisfied? Do they have a sense of security and peace? Maybe, um, maybe some of these names sound familiar to you. Uh, Whitney Houston, Robin Williams, Phil Hoffman, Tony Scott, all these people achieved their goals. They did. They were famous. They had loads of money. But what ended up happening? Killed themselves. I mean, I can go on and on. Then I thought of some guys from my era. Um, Kurt Cobain, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Hutchinson, the NXS frontman, Al Warren Scott, who dated Rolling Stones. They idols. They promise so much, but deliver 
so little. Speak to any famous person or speak to any person with lots of money or speak to any person, what is your heart longing for? Go to someone who has what your heart is longing for and ask them, is it what it cracked up to be? And see what they say. Chat to them and see. Kim Kardashian has been quoted as saying, believe it or not, fame is not as glamorous as it seems. And Jim Carrey has been quoted as saying, he wishes everyone had a chance to be famous because then they could see it's not what everyone thinks it is. So some of you are probably sitting there now thinking, uh, look, Shane, I have no desire to be rich or famous, so I don't see how this applies to me. <laughs> what are you getting at? Well, you may not have a desire to be rich and famous, but what does your mind gravitate towards when nothing else is demanding its attention? What do you daydream about? Maybe I've been a bit boring and you haven't followed some of the things I've said. What has your mind gravitated towards as I've been talking? Is it perhaps a, a dream holiday? Oh, we could just go to Mauritius and sit on that beach and play golf. Oh. Or that new car. Ooh, that smell of leather. Rocking up to a party and everyone says, ooh, look at you. Uh, or a new house or renovating your existing house. Um, winning that competition. How many people daydream about winning the lotto? Huh? Being number one in your particular field. Or perhaps maybe a new salary increase. Oh, if only I got an extra whatever. 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 a month. What, what do you think about? Uh, maybe it's this boyfriend. Oh, if I could get this boyfriend, or if I could get those new clothes, or if I could get this, then my life will have meaning. I'd feel loved. I'll have a sense of value. People will respect me. You see, those are more than likely idols in your heart, the stuff that you daydream about. And you know what? We don't even realize we're doing it. I must emphasize that idols are not bad things. I have no objections to holidays and cars and houses. In fact, I'm guilty of them. We go on nice holidays. Well, we don't pay for it. The company pays for it. But we, I think we're very fortunate. So I have nothing against those things. But they're not ultimate things. They're not going to satisfy me. Why do we make idols? I wish this was interactive like home group, but it's not. So I'll give you the answer. <laughs> we make idols because, and this is quite serious, <laughs> We want a sense of value. We want to get rid of this nothingness inside of us, this feeling of nothingness. We want a sense of redemption. We want a sense of my life actually counts for something. We want to know that we've not lived in vain. We want a sense of worth and a deep, deep, deep human need is we want a sense of acceptance. Often we look to idols to give us those things, but they are not designed to carry our deepest desires. So what is the answer? Is there something that is designed? to carry our deepest desires. And this is, the, this is my favorite part now. Yes, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, if you drink this water that I give you, you will never thirst. He says, if you eat of me, you won't be hungry. That longing to be accepted, that longing to know that everything is going to be okay, that to know that there's no longer any need to strive and try to prove myself, that deep need to know that you are absolutely secure is found in Jesus. He's not a God that you will crush you when you let him down. He won't crush you when you let him down because there is forgiveness in him. There's forgiveness in him. He will not destroy us by an insatiable desire for more. He thirsted on the cross so that we don't have to thirst and constantly, constantly live with a sense of more. If you read at the end of John uh, I promise you it's at the end of John. I'm not making this up. But Jesus hung on a cross. I don't quite know the exact scripture. But he hung on a cross. When he hung on a cross, he says, I thirst. You know what was happening? Is he was taking every desire that we have, every false desire, 
and it was placed on him. And he was thirsting. Why? So that we don't have to thirst. He thirsted so that we don't have to thirst. The great exchange. So that when we are in him, we are satisfied. The striving ceases. The hard work, trying to live up to the standard, never seems good enough. It ceases. This need for approval and affirmation, which, as I said earlier, are deep-rooted human needs, <coughs> excuse me, are found in Jesus on the cross. When you know that the Most High has accepted you, not based on what you've done. Now, this is the key, because it's based on what you've done, you have an idol of self-righteousness. But when you know that the Most High accepts you based on what Jesus has done, something inside of us, and you know what, his opinion is the only opinion that really matters at the end of the day. When all the fanfare and all the rah-rah and people are gone, his opinion is the only one that really matters at the end of the day. And when we know that, something is empowered, something inside of us is empowered to deal with the rejection, to deal with the heartache, to deal with any, any tragedy that comes our way because we know what the Most High thinks of us. And if we're in Christ, he says, come, come, he's paid the price for you. Come, my son, come, my daughter, come, we're accepted in him. See, at the cross, we find that sense of value because we know that Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. We get rid of that feeling of nothingness because we see what he went through for us, which means that we're not worth nothing. We're worth something. We're not worth Nothing, because when we see what he went through for us, we realize that we are infinitely more than we thought possible because we see the depths that he went to for you and me. That cross was horrific, guys. It was, uh, yeah, in six minutes. We have a sense of redemption because we see how he's redeemed us. He's paid the price that we couldn't pay. He redeemed us. He paid the price. It should have been me and you hanging on that cross, but he paid the price. At the cross, we know that my life actually counts for something. Because if he went through what he went through, my life counts. I have purpose. I'm living for someone greater than just myself. At the cross, I know that I have not lived my life in vain because I'll meet my maker one day and be reconciled to him. So this sense of hope rises up inside of me that in Jesus, I am going to see God one day. I'm going to see him one day. Our deep need for acceptance is met at the cross because we know we are accepted because Jesus paid the price. We don't need to prove anything to anyone. Not to your parents, not to that school teacher that said that you'll never amount to anything, not to your grandparents, not to your mates that called you a rubbish and said that you're useless. And We don't need to prove anything because our value is found in Jesus. Man, what a secure identity. What a security when we are found in him and he thinks we're cool. <laughs> He won't destroy you. He's the only thing that can handle your deepest desires and your burdens. In 1 Peter, we're told to cast our burdens onto him because he cares for us. And for me, this was challenging. Preparing this preach was a real challenge for me. Because <laughs> I had to ask myself, what am I looking to? What am I thinking? And you can complete your things. Man, if only I had, mm, mm, mm. I'll be sorted. But actually, you know what? Is Jesus your everything? Has he exploded into your life and changed the way that you view God? Or are you trying to fit him in like that sheet? Are you trying to take God and just like add him to your way? <laughs> doesn't work like that. I want to end with a quote by David Foster Wallace. He was a professor of English at a college in America. He was an atheist. So this is very interesting for an atheist to say what I'm about to say. He studied human behavior 
and he was a real specialist in his field. The sad thing is, is that he committed suicide soon after giving this talk. Sorry, all the suicide examples sounds very depressing. Sorry, that wasn't my, wasn't my intention. Um, but it just gives a state of how hopeless humanity really is at the moment. But, but this is what he said. He said, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time starts showing, you'll die a million deaths because your body is going to change. Settle that now. I know mine has, but my wife still loves me. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll feel, end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Credible for an atheist to say that. Someone who's not even a Christian to say things like that. There's a peace and a security that can only be found in Jesus. Nothing, nothing, nothing was created to carry your deepest desire. Only Jesus can. He wants to be your everything. He doesn't want you to squeeze him. He doesn't want you to try to squeeze him. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, this is me. Um, <clears throat> this is me here. And take your life. Take your life. Take your life. <laughs> and put it into me. saying, take your life and put it into me. Put it into me. Take your thinking. Take everything that you've ever thought about and find it in Jesus. Because when we're in him, God sees us as righteousness. He doesn't see our stuff. He sees Jesus. He wants all of us because he knows if, if he gets all of us, we get everything we need. When we give him everything that we are, we end up getting everything that we need. Shall we pray? Shall we stand? Then we can pray. Matt, do you want to add something? Brendan? Want to add? <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, that you satisfy us. Man, what a privilege and what an honor it is to, to find our identity, our security in you, Lord. We thank you that, that you are so secure and we can be so secure in you. We pray that you would help us to dethrone those idols inside all of us, Lord. And won't you help us to enthrone you, Jesus? When we find our, our, our sort of thoughts and our minds and our hopes and our dreams and our desires gravitating to something outside of you, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd just you'd show us, Lord, how to, how to bring it in line, Lord. And we want to live for you, Jesus. We want to give you everything. We want more and more of you. We thank you that you satisfy, Lord. We want that water that you promise us. We want to eat the bread of life that you say that if we eat, we won't be hungry again. We thank you that you give it to us so freely, Lord, so freely. We don't have to earn it. We receive it by your grace, Lord. Not that we can boast on our works or anything like that, but we thank you. We thank you that you have our back. We thank you that you're a good God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. If I have said something that struck a nerve and you want to chat to me, you want to respond, maybe you're battling with idols, maybe you don't even know Jesus, you're far from God, you've been thinking, I need to do this stuff and... and Hopefully your appetite's been wet. We're up here, Brendan, Matt, myself, come chat to us. But if you don't come chat to us, come chat downstairs. And I'm sure there's some little eats, some tea, coffee.
It's really good to see you. Can I encourage you to stay? Meet somebody. You just met them earlier. Continue those conversations that you started earlier. Good to see you.